Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Beitza, Dap Chav Gimel, page 23. Well, we're in the midst of Yom Tov. We are literally in the midst of Yom Tov and Chag. Um, and I know many of us feel like we're on a marathon daf Yomi uh, to keep up with everything. So if you've been sticking with us in regular time, kudos to you. Even if you've been needing to catch up a little bit, still kudos to you. We know that this is a very hard time of year, but hopefully the topic is keeping us all uh, engaged and interested. So we have a few uh, Mishnayos on this staff, but before we get to the first Mishnah on Amar Aleph, um, I just want to read an interesting uh, passage here. There is a, a type of malacha called Keturah uh, that is mentioned here. Dresh Rav Gavia mi Beikatil aferte deve Resh Galuta. So Rav Gavia from Beikatil once taught at the entrance of the uh, of the uh, Reish Galuta, Kitura sh, uh, Shrei, that Kitura, this act of Kitura is permitted on Achag. And that's the only statement that he says. Amar le Amemar, so Amemar says to him, my Kitura, what is this Kitura? E Kitura bide, masa umanhu. If it's Kitura, meaning that you tie these sort of, it's an ornament that you would tie, uh, some type of ornamental knot that you would tie by hand. This is the act of a craftsman, of an uman. And we know that those types of acts are not allowed to be done on a yom tov, on a chag. And therefore, this would be considered to be a malacha. And if it is referring to burning of some type of incense, right? It shares the same word as ketoret, ketura. Um, so also asor, this is also not going to be allowed. Because he extinguishes. So in other words, what does it mean that he extinguishes? When you would pour some of the incense on the coals itself, it will actually extinguish the coals. And even though you are allowed to use fire on chag for preparing food, you're not allowed to put fire out. Amar le Ravashi. So Ravashi says to him, lo lam l'ashen. So Ravashi says, no, Ketura is definitely this referring to the burning of incense. Midei zahave abishara agumre. But it actually refers to burning, and since that that's allowed, we're allowed to do that because you're allowed to put, uh, but uh, sorry, abisara. I said that word wrong because you can put meat on coals for roasting. So in other words, once you're allowed to sort of use coals, even though it may not be directly for cooking, we're going to allow you to use it here. Now we have a different version of this. Ika to Amri. Some say it a little differently. Amrle Amemar. Amemar said to Rab Gavia. My Ketura, what's Ketura? E Ketura Bidei, Masa Umanu. So again, this is the same formulation. If it's this tying of knots, this is the work of a craftsman, and obviously should be Asur. Ila Ashain Asur, come Molid Recha. But if it's burning of incense, it's because he produces a new scent. So it's interesting to see that there are two different versions here of what the Malacha is. The first version is that it's Machaba, it's extinguishing the coals. And the second one is it's this issue of Molid. Uh, mole, which w- is talked about on the beginning of the daf, which is this idea of making a new scent, right? So this idea, can you pour perfume on clothing? That's what the beginning of the daf talks about. Amar um, Ravashi, Ravashi says, Ana imrita nihile. So Ravashi says, right, I said this, you know, halacha, basically to Rav Gavia, right? Amrita nihile. And I said it in the name of a great man. And he's talking about Rava here. And it's referring to the burning of incense. 
and where it's allowed because you're allowed to put meat on coals. Now, I still think the Gemara is puzzled by this. It doesn't really give us a good reason about why this action of burning it, it's clear that it's a burning of a, a burning of incense, right? It's a burning of something that smells good. Why exactly it's allowed when it's clear that it's related to two different possibilities of malacha is not clear. And it seems to be, well, it's similar to cooking, so we're going to allow. But it really seems to be a great exception um, and not really sort of a standard, particularly if you look at it as what happened, you know, previously in, on the DAF, where it really talked about that there is this whole issue about sort of creating a new scent of some sort. Um, so I just thought this was an interesting passage where my guess is probably people did this work of Keturah and it sort of was allowed. So now the Yamurayim have to come and sort of be like, well, this is why it was basically allowed because it seems like it's something that a lot of people were doing. And especially if this was something taught in the Reish Galutza's house, my assumption would be that it was something that was actually done in the house of the Reish Galutza. So an interesting passage. Before I start the Mishnah, Anne, anything you want to add to that? Um, I just think it's interesting that there's this whole area or a subcategory of halacha that I feel like is not, I don't know what, mainstream? Like you would think that once you're talking about things like yentif and cooking and so on, these are areas that, you know, we still we still do these things. So it's interesting to me that, you know, you have to learn this daf to know it. It's not your basic hilchot yom tov that everybody learns. No, you know. not at all. And and this thing with the burning of incense, like I don't think anybody would think to do that on Yom Tov. Well, we don't use coals in that way either. Right, um, fair enough. So now we're going to get to the mission on this staff. So Shadvarim Rabbi Eliezer ben Azaria Matir Bechachamim Ostrim. Right, so before we were talking about Rabbi Gamliel and what he was mekel on and what he was strict on, so now we're going to get to Rabbi Eliezer ben Azaria. So remember, this is our Rabbi Eliezer ben Azaria from our famous Gemar and Brachot, Dav Chav Zayin and Chav Chet, page 27 and 28, where he deposes Rav Gamliel from being the Nasi, although ultimately they end up sharing it, right? And there were three things that he was mater, that he allowed, but the Chachamim were uh, prohibited. Uh, so this, you should remember, was actually discussed in Masach Shabbat. His cow would go in on Shabbat with a decorative strap between its horns. Rabbi Elazar held that that was basically an ornament, um, whereas the Chachamim held it was a burden and therefore was caring for the animal, for the cow, and it wouldn't be allowed. He also said that you can comb an animal with a fine comb we're talking about on a festival in order to remove like ticks and dirt or things like that from the hair. And the Chachamim don't allow it and the Gemara will talk about it later because maybe it will cause a wound, uh, uh, you know, or bruise the animal, right, which you're not allowed to do. The, um, and then finally, the Shochakin etza pelpelin the Rechim Shalahan. And you can grind pepper on Yom Tov, even in its own mill, even though this would be typically a weekday activity, he would allow this on Chag. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, in Maktirin, at the behem of Yom Tov, Rabbi Yehuda says, you can't comb an animal using this fine tube comb, because you'll make this, you know, wound, you could hurt the animal. But you can use a brush. Um, so that wouldn't, you know, that has like blunter teeth, basically, is what the Mepharsh explained. Not only can you not comb the chacham and say, but you also can't brush. So the Gemara is going to get into a lot of detail about the combing and the brush, but I just want to read the beginning here. So the Gemara basically says, you're going to say it's this one cow that he had, right? That he only had one cow that he tied this ornament around. 
But I'm a rab. Didn't Rev say be im relay? I'm a Rev Yehuda. I'm a Rev. And some say Rev Yehuda said this in the name of Rab. Tleisar alfe yigile habe masa Rev Yelazar ben Azaria me edre kol shata v'shata. That every year Rav Yelazar ben Azaria would type right. You have to give masa from your animals thirteen thousand calves every single year. So this means he had thousands and thousands of animals. He was very wealthy, and we know that from the Gemara and Brachos when it talked about. One of the reasons why he was suitable to be the Nasi is because it said he was wealthy. And here's proof of him being wealthy. So, again, this goes with my sort of, you know, the intertextual pieces of this that what we learn in one place he's wealthy and why that was important to, for him becoming the Nasi. Here we have it, an example of where it shows as well. Think about how many cows he had to show if a tenth of his calves uh, for Maser was 13,000. And so we're saying, so why does it say one, one cow? Um uh, Tana, so we learned it was taught in the Tosepta. Lo shalo haita wasn't his cow. It was his neighbors. Because he didn't say anything, he didn't, you know, tell this neighbor, maybe this is not something your cow should be doing. We call it by his name. It's really not nice to him. In a way, it's like discrediting him by saying that, you know, you didn't say anything to your neighbor. You didn't correct your neighbor. So it's almost like, so it's as if it was your own Cow. So I think we learned two things from him. One is this is a great example of Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah's wealth. And the second is, I think we learned a lesson here that the Chazal rabbis had a huge responsibility. And if they didn't say something like silence is basically saying that you agree with something. And so here the Gemara is basically saying, you know, silence is not always a good thing. If you see something that may not be correct, it's your obligation uh, to to call it out. So it's sort of a different read of the Mishnah. When you first read the Mishnah, it seems to be saying this was something that Rabbi Eliezer ben Azari endorsed. Here, the Gemara, I think you could make a little bit of a read saying, like, it's not clear if he endorsed it, but certainly by the fact that he didn't correct it, that was equal to an endorsement. And this concept, of course, applies in so many settings, right? This idea of shtiki koda, that silence is an endorsement, is not just here. For sure. We really? see that in many places, right? But I think many this places. is a, a, great ex- a great example of it. And again, I think makes the Mishnah read a little bit differently than, than it's shot. Yes, I think that's true. I think that it's going to be particularly interesting when we see it, you know, more in the court case type of setting, right? That, you know, you're talking about, I don't know, conflicting testimony and then what happens with silence. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to Ahmed Bet. Ahmed Bet has fundamentally three different Mishnayan on it. One of which is the new parak. We're going to finish this parak today. We're going to start the new parak and with that Mishnah tomorrow. Um, but here we have, it's kind of a continuation, Yerdena, of what you've just read. We're talking here about a pepper mill, right? And the rationale here is not really even about yuntif. We're talking about whether it can be impure or not. You know, when what what aspects of it are can be rendered impure. And it's simply the continuation in this kind of associative manner that the Talmud has of saying, um, well, we were talking about the pepper mill with regard to Yantif, and now we're going to talk about the pepper mill with regard to impurity. So this is a kind of pepper mill, which I, I don't know if any of these are still in use. I have uh, in my, again, in my handy dandy Steindaltz, which I use for the pictures, I have a picture here or a diagram of a Roman era metal spice mill, which is we're going to see in the Gemara here that this is not entirely the case of, of the one in the Mishnah, but um, there's basically different discs or component parts where 
you know, I guess part of it is the receptacle and part of it is going to be the blade. And then part of it is, I'm not sure. Meaning it, I don't, I'm not exactly clear how all of these different parts work together, but there are three different segments. And the Mishnah's point is that each of these three things is considered its own kli, and each one can become impure in its own right. Mishum kli kibul, mishum kli matechet, or mishum kli kvara. So we have, first we've got um, the fact that we've got a, the receptacle, right, which is going to be, it's wooden, and it's a receptacle, it accepts so that's the definition of a kli, right? It's going to accept the pepper, I guess. And then we've got the part that's a metal vessel. And then the part that um, it says that it's a kvara, it's something that is sifting, right? I guess between the, as you grate it, as you grind your pepper, not great, as you grind your pepper, you end up with the different component parts. And that's also like it sifts it out. So again, this is kind of not really our, our gemara, this masachet, but it's a specific issue and it needs to be, you know, you would need to pay attention to it in an era where Tumantara were governing which Kalim you could use and which ones you could not use. It's not the same thing as, it's not a simple Kli, right? This pepper mill has component parts and each one of them could render the whole thing in, inusable because of the impurity. So the Gemara here, it's a very, very short piece of Gemara. Tana tachtona mishum Kli kibu emtsait mishum Kli kvara so the Gemara basically kind of draws us the picture a little bit more clearly. It says the kli kibul, the kibul is the bottom part, right? That's that's going to, the, the pepper once it's ground is going to end up in the receptacle that's going to hold it. And to eat the middle part is the sifter, the grinder, whatever that's going to filter out the pepper. And the eliona is the matechet is made of mess of made of metal. Of course, that's the part that really is the chopper. Of a that's going to grind it, um, and that's it. Meaning the the implications here, of course, are you know you have to take care when you're grinding pepper to make sure that your kalim that all three component parts are pure if you need them to be pure, and that's it. Like there's nothing. I don't. Your Dan, if you have anything more to add, by all means do. I don't think there's anything beyond that for this little piece of Gemara and Mishnah. No, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's just, you know, it's a Mishnah that's sort of a tangent, but it gets stuck in here uh, just because, like, as we're talking about pepper mills, we're just going to mention this halacha about it. Exactly, exactly. And it reminds us, right, there's several different reasons why something could become impure or would be susceptible to tumor. Okay, and now we've got the last Mishnah of this, Perak, um, and it's, I would say it's, cuter than the pepper mill. Agalash al-Katan. We're talking about the the wagon of a of a child. Tmeya Midras. So it can become it can be rendered impure by walking on it or sitting on it. Vinitelet Bishabat. So you can handle it on Shabbat because it's considered a kli. And you could drag it on the ground, but you can only drag it on the ground if it's going to be on on cloth or a stone pavement or something like that. You don't want it to make any grooves in a dirt path, let's say, because that would put you in risk of being akin to plowing. So again, this is here because we we're talking about impurity and now we're talking about impurity. We're not really talking about Yantif here, even though you might think that this conversation about Shabbat could veer into Yantif. It doesn't. Rabbi Huda Omer, kol ha-kelim ein chutz min agala, mipnei shehi koveshet. So Rabbi Yudha has a different take. He says, 
that none of these vessels, and you can't drag any vessels on the ground on Shabbat except for a wagon. And the only reason the wagon is permitted is because if you're not talking, because it says that the wheels of a wagon don't really make a furrow, they just press the earth down. It says you're not moving any earth out of its place, so it's not considered digging or plowing on Shabbat, which is a very different take that I think most people relate to this concern of what does it take to to at the most minimal way of plowing the ground. We think of it as just like making holes could be working the ground. Rabbi Huda's position here is much more lenient. My question, of course, is, you know, if we're talking about a child who is impure, I can think of several ways that a child could become impure. But some of the commentary I've seen says, if the child is a zav. And I'm surprised by that because I don't know if I would have realized that a child has the potential to become a zav. I, I totally agree with you. I think we always think of it as a, a sort of an adult affliction. Um, right. So it, 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 it's an interesting interpretation. Uh, and that so one that I've seen in other contexts before. Right. It's so often translated as venereal disease, which I suppose a child could be susceptible if, you know, if he catches it, whatever. But um, it's still not, it's not, it's not the common use of the terms of. Listen, we don't usually com- commonly speak about children's agalot either, the ch- child's wagon. We do have some interesting gemara here. So this will perhaps kind of help understand what's really going on. Agalash katan dras, ilave. So it says that the child's wagon is susceptible to being becoming ritually impure um, because the kid is leaning on it. And so then that's the same thing of, of anything that could become ritually impure from a person who is Tameh. The point is that most adults who might be at risk of being Tameh are not the people who are handling the child's wagon to begin with. It's the child who's handling the child's wagon, or at least that's the presumption here. And then the Gemara says, it has the status of a vessel. And the moment you've got the status of a, of a vessel, it's something that can be used on Shabbat. It can be handled on Shabbat. It's not muksa in this in any way that, you know, you might have thought that it was, a, I don't know, a tractor. Obviously, we're talking about an old-fashioned kind of wagon, right? We're not talking about electronic bells and whistles. Um, and then, of course, the Gemara talks about this fact that in the Mishnah, it talks about dragging the wagon only on cloth, right, as opposed to on the ground. And the concern being the furrow. So what I find here interesting is then, you know, this the Gemara makes it very clear that that position of the Mishnah is, um, it, the Gemara wants to know, you know, whose opinion is this, Mani? And this is Rabbi Huda. He, now, Rabbi Huda is the one who in the Mishnah, I said, makes a more, has a more lenient opinion. The Gemara here says, Rabbi Huda, he, the Amar, davar she'en asur. In general, Rabbi Huda was of the opinion that something that was unintended that you don't have intent for it to happen, that act is still prohibited. And that's already an unusually machmir position, right? That, because, for example, this is the case of the wagon. You're dragging the wagon across the ground. You want the wagon to move from this point to that point. You have no interest. You have no intent for it to make a furrow in the ground. You're not working the ground. You're moving your wagon. But Rabbi Huda says that it's not permitted to put a furrow in the ground. Um, then he's going to say it has to be over cloth to prevent that furrow from happening. What I find interesting, unless maybe we can say here that this is a different Rabbi Yehuda, but I don't think so. Um, then Rabbi Yehuda goes on to say that when you drag the, rag- the wagon on the ground, you're just pressing the earth down, and that's not plowing. So here it says, Amos Sefer, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, 
אין הכל נגררים בשבת חוץ מן הגלה, מפני שהיא כובשת. Exactly, this oppresses it down, it doesn't really plow. מפני שכובשת, אין, אבל חריץ לא עבדה. He says, pressing the earth down, yes, it does do that, but it doesn't make a furrow. And the point then is that Rabbi Yehuda himself seems to con- contradict himself, which of course is my concern. After the, my two concerns on the Mishnah, one was Rabbi Yehuda, this potential contradiction or the, between the more machmer position and the more makel position, and the child being us up. Trey, Tanai, Valiba, Rabbi Yehuda. So Gemara resolves it at the very end of our parak, and it says, here's how we do it. We've got two Tanayim, each of who are holding in accord with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, and they differ in the way that um, opinion is going to be put into practice. Namely, the first Tana, holds that even when a rag- wagon would make a furrow and it would be plowing, it would be okay because the Varshin could be considered permissible or that it's, I'm sorry, let me say this more carefully. The first opinion is that when the wagon makes a furrow, which is a problem of plowing, so you need the cloth to prevent the plowing from happening. And the other Tana says, the Rebbe Yehuda says that the wagon doesn't make a furrow, but if it did, the implication being, but if it did, it would be a problem. Um, so, I think sometimes this kind of answer where you've got like a, an apparent contradiction or, you know, a striking contradiction between the Tanakama, who is, you know, we say it's a Liba de Rebbe Huda, it's in accord with Rebbe Huda's position. And the second statement is Rebbe Huda himself. And then the Gemara's resolution of what seems to be contradictory statements is Tre Tanai, meaning we've got two Tanaim and it's not just one. And that's why we can have different cases that can line up even though they seem to be contradictory, really they're not, not, they're not contradictory at all. Um, I think it's, on the one hand, beautiful and fancy footwork. And on the other hand, um, I kind of would like to sit down and have a conversation with Rabbi Yehuda about how, you know, what does he think about how this Mishnah is representing this view of his in these two different paths? Yeah, and it's, you know, not exactly clear uh, what his ultimate opinion is. And I, I appreciate that the Gemara you know, sometimes they really try to hone in and be like, this is what the correct understanding is. And here, I don't think they land on a definitive answer. Um, I think that they resolve it by saying that we've got two different views represent, two different people. Right, but it's an interesting resolution. It's not one that I think we've seen before. I just want to note how unusual it is. Okay, sure. That it's means- two different Tanas giving two different interpretations of Rabbi Yehuda. That's all. Right, right, right. And then it resolves it very neatly, right? It's a very neat package now because we don't have any contradiction anymore because we have two different people. Right, but that's not a typical resolution. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.